If you imagine every child that was killed, that's somebody's cousin, that's somebody's son, that's somebody's nephew, that's somebody's neighbor. This is Dr. Uthman Latif, Crusades historian and expert in Al-Quds, Jerusalem, Palestine, and someone who's carried out extensive postdoctoral research into empathy, dehumanization, and othering in conflict. He's going to be lifting the veil on the mechanics of dehumanization used against people from the Nazi Holocaust all the way to the ongoing occupation, ethnic cleansing and attempted genocide of the Palestinians. How has our language, media and politics dehumanized Palestinians? And more importantly, how do we rehumanize them? Stay tuned to find out in this episode of Empowered by Islam 21C. Our new podcast where we collaborate with leading voices to discuss Islam solutions to 21st century challenges and trends. So your postdoctoral research was in empathy and othering in conflict. Uh, can you just tell me a bit about what you have to say um, vis-a-vis that and what we're seeing unfold in Palestine in these last few weeks? I think you know what we're seeing right now is, is a, a manifestation of the reality of what othering, demonization actually not only are but produce. In, in a real human level. Remember, othering is a kind of a mechanism of dehumanization, that is the stripping away of all of the codes of what makes us and rec- makes us recognize each other as human. Uh, and if we deny that on another people, that means we are we are effacing them. In fact, it's uh, self-effacing to begin with because we're denying something in our own consciousness and we're imputing the worst of us onto somebody else. And right now, in fact, the Palestinians in Gaza uh, not only have been called human animals by the IDF, the Israeli Defense Minister, uh, but of course they're being treated uh, like animals, as if they're of course in a cage. And if you if you if you if you multiply the fact that they're in a surrounding, so a structural otherness, the fact they're in a, in a surrounding which is like called the open air, the largest open air prison in the world, and it's, as if it's a cage, and then you call them human animals. Uh, in people's imagination, those, of course, who are not uh, attuned to the suffering of the Palestinians uh, for a long time, uh, would see that being played out in terms of a, uh, you know, a, a zookeeper fighting against wild animals. And that, in fact, is shown in the barbarity expressed and shown in the destruction of Gaza, in the killing of its people, in the killing of innocent men, women, children, in the blowing up of schools, of hospitals, like yesterday, for example. Uh, and of course, uh, that really is, in our world today, the, the, the manifestation of what othering, demonization is, in a very real sense. We see we see kind of uh, othering and dehumanization, obviously on the part of the Israelis, as, as a tool to kind of um, uh, keep up the ongoing siege ongoing oppression of muslims in gaza and in the west bank and and, and even within uh what is what is what they're calling israel um but one thing that many people have noticed is the world seems to be split right you see th- those maps going around the vast majority of the world in terms of geography and in terms of you know people are, are you know pro-palestine uh, liberation in one sense or another but you see a very few um, examples of some countries, Western countries that are predominantly, you know, white or or former European colonies, right? The U.S. and, and Australia, they tend to be supporting um, the the and uh, showing unconditional support for the the what I call the last remaining colony in the Middle East, Israel. 
and uh, it, it's also telling that these countries are, are also themselves at the grip of uh, the scourge of, 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 of right-wing populism and far-right kind of ethno-nationalism uh, spreading amongst them. So there's also something about who our countries see as human and who they see as subhuman. Who, you know, because um, in all intents and pur- for all intents and purposes, it, the Israelis are practically just of European descent. They're white. They're virtually indistinguishable from, you know, uh, the, 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 the white race, so to speak, in these countries. And there has to be that level, that understanding as well. Whereas the, the Palestinians are shown as, you know, brown-skinned, kind of dusty face, disheveled, um, kind of almost on that, even in the, in the, in the presentation that kind of, uh, uh, less than human or somehow the third world and Israel is hailed as you know the shining beacon of, of, of whiteness which is effectively what people want to say but then they don't say in the Middle East in fact the non-white Jews they they have they get treated terribly in, in within Israel as well themselves and it's also what what can you say about how our countries how our mainstream media how our politicians pl- practice this um this double standard or, or the selective outrage over the killing of people who are seen as human and the killing of people who are seen as kind of collateral damage or they had it coming or, you know, they're, they're human animals, this kind of stuff. I think you've mentioned the important things there, by because the, the key word is the word selective. The fact that we have not just a moral consistency in us, even though we, we proclaim moral compassion, but is there moral consistency in, in the way that we treat and, and deal with other people who are suffering. Remember, of course, that we're talking about people who have, aside from Palestinians, who have suffered years of colonialism, have been victims and subjugated to oppression, uh, to colonialism in different ways and methods and forms. And I think that there is a more of a hu- human uh, element of compassion exerted towards Palestinians in their suffering from those who have already observed and felt the, uh, the effect of colonialism and subjugation from other parts of the world. I think there's more of a human empathy uh, from those who have uh, who have suffered and who empathy is, is a, a degree of perspective taking. And you can perspective take more with those that you've suffered with. In fact, empathy means uh, with suffering as opposed to sympathy meaning or sympathy meaning with suffering and empathy is in, in suffering. And so that broader degree of human empathy, uh, I think, is expressed uh, particularly from those who have seen or felt or know stories of the, um, the tragedies afflicted upon them or by those they're familiar with. I think that this is, in fact, not so much new in our world. Of course, people have suffered before as a consequence of a predominance, predominance in the world, a barbarity in the world expressed towards indigenous uh, you might say weaker people, uh, the suffering afflicted upon the Aborigines, for example, the black people of America, the, the Native uh, Americans, uh, all of these, in fact, were Native indigenous people like the Palestinians. But they had above them, over them, a people intent on their uh, subjugation, intent on their annihilation, and using all different ploys and methods and means. You mentioned the importance of, of color of a people's skin. I think this is a very, very important uh, because. Uh, remember that when you do, when people dehumanize others, they're, they're looking for a very small difference in a people. And the purpose is to take the small difference and to magnify it 
and make it so that the small difference is so meaningful as to relegate those others as undeserving of what the the, the self or the host people uh, are deserving of. Dehumanizing, dehumanizing is to is to believe that other people are not as deserving as oneself is. So on the one hand, what you have to do is you have to create the self. You have to first invent the self. That means you have to depict oneself as perfect, as morally good, as morally compassionate, as uh, virtuous, righteous. And then, of course, the, the other that you're depicting is not morally good. It's going to be defined as bad. And if he's bad, then he can't be good. If he's good, then he can't be bad. As someone inferior, uh, Lenderman's research, 1989, looked at political cartoons in America, uh, looking at the way that Arabs, particularly Palestinians, were shown on TV in America, and particularly in Tefada, Palestinians. And uh, Arabs were vilified as uh, uncultured, uncivilized, as uh, as barbarous, as as villainous, as you know, as, as weak, as inferior. This had a very big effect in terms of uh, giving support to the Israelis in their campaign against Palestinians, because already a stereotypical image of the Arabs vis-à-vis -vis the slashed Palestinians is being shown, and therefore it justifies. Uh, the the uh, the war against Palestinians, and I think the same is true. In fact, today, my book, I've written two books, in fact, on empathy. One being on being human, how Islam addresses othering, empathy. Do you can find this free as a, as an ebook on sapiensuit.org website. But I have another book, which is an academic book from a postdoc called "Navigating War, Dissent, and Empathy in Arab-U.S. Relations: Seeing Our Others in Darkened Spaces," published by Springer. A few years ago, uh, I looked at these kind of negative tropes in the way that Arabs are projected. You mentioned words like dusty, disheveled. So I looked at the way that images have a very big effect in affecting people's imagination, um, mindset to do with other people. Now, when it comes, for example, to Palestine, you'll notice Gaza, for example, you'll see images of broken buildings, destroyed buildings. You'll see people suffering en masse. You'll see people walking along as refugees en masse. You'll see the destruction of it. And when I see that, it reminds me, in fact, of a, a, a very uh, a, 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 a song composed by Loki, in fact, called uh, Grenfell, about the Grenfell Towers. And he has this anaphoric line called um, uh, Rooms Where. And Rooms Where is like this uh, anaphoric line in the poem where you're forced to consider what was yesterday and what is today. Rooms where, and rooms where yesterday where you had furniture and settings that are humanized, and rooms now we don't have that anymore. And this, of course, I speak about this at length in my book. Uh, one of the, um, uh, there was a man called S. Yizhar, is a pen name. He wrote a book called Kibrek Kizades, an historical fiction of the Nakba of the 1948 destruction of Palestine, the forced expulsion of Palestinians from their homes. And he's writing about it as an Israeli Jew, by the way, uh, because he was so taken aback by the level of uh, insane uh, victimization of the Palestinians. One of his, in one of his uh, chapters, he writes about the fact that illegal settlers are now entering Palestinian homes. And he said that these were homes in which the female touch 
have been, meaning the homes are already constructed, you already have furniture in place, you have already have rooms, ornaments, already somebody has lived there. And then he says, and won't the, won't the walls scream? Won't the walls scream that we, we, we've already lived here before? And so the element of rooms where, meaning the past, not just seeing dilapidated, destroyed buildings of Gaza, those were homes once upon a time, just like yesterday. There were hospitals and schools and homes and mothers and fathers and all of that existed there. So, but if you're only seeing destruction, then of course it's, it's agreeing with the idea that perhaps these are people who are so barbaric, uncultured, uncivilized that they belong to those dusty settings. I look at, for example, the war in Iraq in my book, and I compare that I have chapters of comparison with uh, America, with the school massacres, for example, uh, Virginia Tech, and comparison with Iraq, and modes of suffering, and the way the empathy bearing is shown, and everything else. One thing you'll find in Iraq, in the Iraq war, is that those notions of uh, individuality in the Arab, Iraqi, Muslim expression were, were absent. You'll find that people were shown as a as on mass but not in groups yeah and so they painted using broad brushstrokes i think i remember you saying as well that's where it was because when you dehumanize you have to imagine there is a mental canvas canvas in your mind and you're using broad strokes and wide brushes and you're painting an image of something or somebody other than you and by imputing all of the worst of you into that other person that's how you create the savage other and uh, you're not allowing for fine grades of distinction, you know, to allow the, the identity to emerge in that person. Uh, and I think that's happening right now with, with people of Gaza because they're not given. In fact, on the one hand, in fact, they are given because of the rise of social media and the fact that in, in particularly Muslims and those who support the Palestinian cause realize the importance of, sh of showing that every single, it's like that's somebody. So if you imagine that word somebody is, if you imagine every child that was killed, that's somebody's cousin, that's somebody's son, that's somebody's nephew, that's somebody's neighbor. Every mother, that's somebody's mother, that's somebody's aunt, that's somebody's grandmother, that's somebody's. It places that person in a human frame. If we don't do that, then of course we're guilty of being unable to rehumanize the people who have suffered, suffered so much, uh, years and years of dehumanization. And in fact, that's really what gives the Israeli, um, you know, the, the propaganda machine, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's fuel. The fact that on the one hand, you can have the Israeli populace humanized because they're shown as being civil and enlightened and clever. And on the other hand, you have the barbarians over there. Um, and I think that the purpose of, for us, of course, is to show that the barbarians over there are, are human, uh, have feelings, have lives, are, are immensely important. And uh, the fact that we should, of course, remember that, you know, the othering is by, is by denying them that sense of humanity. Do you, and there's a lot to unpack there. And, you know, one of the things that I want to talk about today is also, also of course, how do we rehumanize the Palestinians, you know? Uh, and, and like, uh, especially when it comes to our duty on social media, for example, the democratization of information, you know, the humanizing narratives are becoming too loud to ignore now. I don't know if you've noticed, if you felt this as well, but this time, even on the mainstream media, it's becoming too loud to ignore. You know, they have to interview more Palestinians. They have to interview 
both sides. They have to give some attention to uh, the, the actual human suffering on the ground. So I do want to get into what we can do. But before that, you, you mentioned a few things on how othering or otherization happens and dehumanization happens. So you mentioned, you know, denial of human codes of recognition, denial of, you know, uh, people's um, finer details and in their individual identities, looking at people as groups, um, setting up this us and them, so setting up the self as, you know, X, Y, Z, and then the other as, as like a placeholder to 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 project one's own insecurities and one's own kind of um, uh, negative features onto. How else does othering happen? How else does dehumanization happen in, in from your research? Well, the, the books I've written, in fact, look at different uh, modes of otherization or othering. We have, of course, on the one hand, this sense of... Um, mechanical authorization and that is that we we look at others through a structural lens and by the way structure is not just demographic uh, distancing it's also a moral and psychological distancing so if we for example think about the way that people are distanced in our world uh, they seem far they might be close but they seem far how do people get to seem far they could be because they're represented as as culturally different to us or uh, emotionally different to us, and therefore we castigate them as as far from us. Uh, there are, of course, microways of us considering that I have in my book. For example, people who are disabled, who are wheelchair-bound, for example, who are mentally disabled. All of these people uh, can be and perhaps are in some ways othered in human society because they're not given the same credits as those who are fit and able and healthy. They're not the same. They're not seen as the same. Whereas from the Islamic paradigm, of course, the Prophet was was very uh, sure to uh, import upon his companions, but upon his companions, the importance of seeing everybody not through uh, a physical a physicality, but in terms of uh, the spiritual essence of the human being. In Akramakum and Allah the most noble of you, Allah, are those who have the most taqwa, fear of Allah, piety amongst you, not just not the human element in you. In fact, there were companions who were. Uh, like the man who was uh, who was blind from Banu Waqif and the Prophet told his companions, come there, see the man from Banu Waqif and he was fully blind. And the Prophet said, let's see the one who has al-Basi, the one who has perception and vision. And the ulama, they say that this is because the Prophet didn't see the man as blind, blind. His heart was alive. And Allah in the Quran says, it is not the hearts that grow blind, it is the eyes that grow blind, it is the eyes, but it is the heart that grow blind. But the man's heart was awake and alive. Uh, and likewise, you had others who were dark-skinned, Bilal Habashi, and you have others who were mentally ill, like the, the, men, the woman who had been... I mean, all these things, in fact, are discussed in my book on being human. Uh, but the point is that we have these uh, potentials as human beings to castigate others as being less worthy than ourselves. Uh, the important thing, of course, in Islam is that Islam has existed with other civilizations, other religions, uh, for a long time. You know, we've had Jews lived with us in Islamic Muslim civilization. You have Christians, you have Zoroastrians. Um, therefore, Islam knew how to deal with others with respect to their differences. But it never castigated those others as being uh, as undeserving, unworthy. They lived by, by their own principles. But the point is that when it comes, for example, if you look at uh, the way that the Western world, you might say Western world, has dealt with uh, people who are different to them. It's very different to the way that Muslims have dealt with. Like, for example, with the Crusades, uh, you had uh, Muslims who already knew about the Christians before the Crusades 
Whereas in the Western world, you didn't have Muslims who lived with the, the Christians before the Crusades. Therefore, that had a very big bearing on their impression that they had of the Muslims. Likewise, the Jews, um, likewise to the people. So I think that that's, that's important for us to consider. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it just reminds me of um, Jonathan Lyon's book, you know, Islam Through Western Eyes. And his, the subtitle was From the Crusades to the War on Terror. You know, so he charts, I mean, your, your PhD was in Crusader history, so you know this, that um, the, the way Islam has been portrayed and projected is of the Muslims have been quintess, the quintessential other of of the what became the Western European. Yeah, and even when um, like, we, we see... For example, sorry to cut you off there, Salman, uh, the element of color, because they projected the Muslims as Turks, and the Turk was the Moor, and the Moor was a darker-skinned person, even though you're speaking about, for example, the Inquisition, native Spaniards who embraced Islam, but that was used as a kind of a motif of otherness. It's like, for example, in contemporary times, I wrote a book in 2019 because of the the, the school the, the shooting in Tuma Sajid in, in Christchurch, New Zealand, by Brenton Tarrant, who killed more than 50 Muslim praying in the Masjid on Jum'a. Jum but in his, uh, in his uh, work, in the uh, manifesto that he wrote, he spoke about the fact that Muslims are today's Turks. And he references Urban II in Crusades. So what would, Urban, what would Urban do? For example, he asked the question rhetorically. Uh, the fact that he sees Muslims as dark as skin. And because they're dark as skin, they can't be as pure and noble and as good as the whiter skinned people. And this was in fact used also by in the Tempest by Shakespeare, was used a lot in, in Western civilization. It had an impression bearing on how the, the people who are far, not, not, so not only because remember Spain is in Europe, so not demographically far afield, but culturally and morally and psychologically far afield from them. Yeah, and hence the process of, of race being something relative and constructed by human beings, right? rather than ethnicity, which is something, you know, uh, a fact about you or your lineage, um, but your race is something, you know, one person might be considered white, in one place, the master race, so-called, and as and that same person may be considered black uh, politically and, and and socially in another place. You know, Malcolm X, um, when he was on the uh, Hajj, he said that he met people who were white as skin, but they didn't they didn't see the world with their whiteness. Hmm. And my black people hmm. didn't see the world from their blackness. The idea is that you could be white, fine, Allah made you like that, but you can't see the world. From that whiteness or that blackness, Allah has given you something which is far greater, superior than that. And that is, of course, that moral intuition that he had that is focused on serving and adoring your divine creator as opposed to living on these human constructed uh, you know, modes of, of selfness. Uh, that's the key point. Yes, subhanAllah. So, we, we, so you mentioned that there are structural changes and differences, the way that, pe way that people are otherwise and... Um, there's the racial element as well, the, the 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 concoction of the us and them, and presenting people as a lighter or darker, uh, you know, metaphorically or even even literally. But um, I mean, th th there's also the, the 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 matter of language as well, right? When we see um, how uh, people's lives are portrayed, or or um, you know, um, casualties, for example, you'll see you'll have seen the the you know the the headlines of BBC or Sky News or whatever, you know, when, when it's when it's a Palestinian, it's a Palestinian. When it's an Israeli, it's Israeli people. You know, when when Palestinians are are killed, they die. Palestinians died. When Israelis die, they they're killed. 
you know when as pad when we in slam tournaments as well we're always quite conscious of our wording as well you know because there are some frames that are inherently legitimizing and some that are inherently delegitimizing you know um as an army is a legitimate kind of thing a, a government you know if you want to portray someone and as as human you call and and as you know part of your in group you 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 talk with these types of legitimizing um words but if they're the other then they're a militia they're fighters they're a regime maybe they're not an army they're not a government they're a regime you know um when they take prisoners they call hostages but when we take prisoners they call prisoners <laughs> you know do you see this how do you see this the the the, the language as as part of this this uh, dehumanization rehumanization battle for sure yeah this is the i have a chapter in my book called the the language of dehumanization the psychology of dehumanization that is that these are euphemisms of language so the fact that you're using constructed vocabulary that reduces a particular emotional uh you know outlet from a people uh, and and you implant in its place something else and so the fact that and but this is not new this is something very old like you mentioned examples in the past where people have been regarded as in fact in britain for example you had the ira in uh, in ireland and you had uh, you had uh, torture of of these paramilitary groups in ireland but they called it intensive interrogation they didn't call it torture but something that would kind of kind of uh, you know, re- make a response from a person that is far more acceptable than intensive interrogations. In, in Palestine, when they torture Palestinians, they call it moderate physical pressure. So as opposed to torture, moderate physical pressure, meaning it doesn't sound that bad if it's moderate physical pressure. The Nazis, uh, when they gassed the Jews, they called it, uh, they called it charitable foundation for, in fact, when they gassed the mentally handicapped, the, the mentally ill in in, in, in Poland, in Germany, they call it charitable foundation for institutional care, which in fact sounds wonderful. Uh, but that was a way of legitimizing uh, the evil being done on other people. And I think that in our world today, as you mentioned, uh, Israelis could be humanized uh, by being defined as people who have simply uh, died uh, or killed, for example. But the Palestinians, of course, are not given their credence, not given the worth and value. By being only Palestinians, they remain as an as an as an othered, distant entity, and not brought fully into the human frame. And I think that the language, of course, has a very big effect in doing that. It is upon us in terms of how we rehumanize, like you mentioned before, uh, the, the struggle of a people, uh, you know, who maybe in themselves. This is very key because remember that there's two ways, or even three ways, in which we think about perception. So it's a bit like the way that um, W.E.B. Du Bois in uh, The Souls of Black Folk wrote about the, the, the suffering of black people in America. And he said that on the one hand, you have we trying to be ourselves as black people. And number two, we have the white people in America, or let's say the ones who are uh, pro-slavery, uh, imputing upon us a perception. Therefore, they're living, they're living, they're living a life and have already developed a perception of us. And number three, we're bound by that perception. So we have three perceptions happening all simultaneously. Our own one that is constructed because of our own culture and ethics and religion, whatever. Number two, we have the white one. And number three, we have the one that's floating in the air. 
that's the, we're supposed to live up to that standard. Uh, and I think that we should not speak about Palestinians as if they're less than humans. They're human beings and they're Muslims. And the fact that they're Muslims, of course, Allah gives them a sense of great sense of superiority for us as believers, uh, recognize them as believers in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That, that's, that's by itself, that's just enough, enough said. But remember that, uh, we're speaking about on the one hand, how they perceive of themselves as fully human. I know it's, 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 it's sad be even saying that, saying that because of course they're human, but the way that the world is perceiving of them and the way that they are bound or almost forced to live by that impression of what the world considers to be naturally right, naturally civilized, naturally good. Whereas we shouldn't allow for that to happen. We shouldn't accept that. We shouldn't accept that for a people. The Palestinians are human as they are, subhanAllah, and beautiful as they are, and civilized as they are, and mature and, and clever as they are, subhanAllah. There was a girl who was killed uh, just a few days ago in one of the bombings, and she had achieved the highest marks out of all the girls in her school, subhanAllah. She was 99% something, and it showed her speaking about her achievement, and she was killed in a bombing, Allah Akbar. You know, may Allah give, it, give the girl Jannah, may Allah give something to her family. But that's, that, that's, that happens in Gaza, even though it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's constructed as a cage to, 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 to force the people in that sense of subjugation. Um, you know, one of the things, it's, it's, it's so tragically ironic that even, even in Nazi Germany, in Poland, for example, in Auschwitz, they denied the Jews food. Because the idea of Himmler and Hosen, Arab Eichmann, was to ensure that the Jews look like animals, they act like animals. There was a psychology involved in. I, I've been to, I've seen the wall in Birkenau Auschwitz where they would, where they would kill the Jews. It would, this is before the gas chambers. But then there was a realization that the more they're doing of this, the more they would, the closeness involved would create empathic connection. Because they're seeing blood and they're seeing the person screaming for life, begging for life. And then they realize that the gas chambers is, is a kind of a mechanical distancing because they would say things like, we're not killing you. It's just like the fans are, are killing, the fans are doing it. Nowadays, what is happening is that somebody flying a fighter jet is, is pressing a button. The bomb is dropping or somebody fly, flying a drone somewhere else. Another country is pressing a button. The bomb's dropping. And, and, and innocent people, civilization, animals, orchards, uh, trees, schools, massages, all being destroyed in one instant. But we don't appropriate the same level of blame on the one who was taking a knife and stabbing someone, uh, one person, a heinous, horrific act of violence, than we do for the person dropping, pressing the button and killing loads of people. Uh, and, and it's even before the bomb even drops, he's miles away in the sky. We don't give the same level of, uh, of there's a very good book called On Killing by Dave Grossman, and his chapter is called Altitude and Attitude. The, the fact that you're so high up, your attitude towards those people you're killing is going gonna, is gonna to change and, and be different. SubhanAllah. And this is, this is partly, uh, you know, I spoke to um, a member of, of an air force of a country, I won't mention who is is um he he was quite up in that country's air force and he left because he was and his colleagues were ordered to you know 
bomb bomb places and when they would fly down closer to the ground they would see uh humanizing kind of structures you know they would see people farms roofs of houses when you're above the clouds it's easier but when you when you went down he said i you know i refuse to comply and i don't want to get him in trouble by mentioning who he is but you know he 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 took a stand and he left so there's that when someone's when something's happening in close proximity you you're almost forced there's something in the fitra that takes over that makes you that forces you to recognize uh human uh codes there, there is a group called refuseniks they are israeli soldiers who refuse to serve in the idf i write about them in both of my books refuseniks and i have quotes from the refuseniks about what changed their minds one of them said that i used to always think about the nazis how could a nazi wake up in the morning and kiss his wife and embrace his child and go and, and gas people to death until i entered occupied territories and I saw myself in the frame. I kissed my wife. I embraced myself that I'm going off to torture and harm other people. I saw myself in that frame. And that's the key thing. The fact that that closeness to human suffering. And remember that we might, for example, like now, for example, if you get American soldiers who have fought in Iraq, the level of PTSD levels have skyrocketed because they've, they've engaged in killing, in torture. In, in, in injuring and wounding so many innocent people, a war based upon lies, and they've been at the front of it all, and they come back and they can't deal with themselves, they kill themselves, suicide, in fact, more people, American kill, kill themselves than, than die in the war. So that's a key thing. Rachel Corey, who, who was killed by the Israelis in 2003, she was part of the ISM, International Soldier Movement, and she was defending. They drove over her with a bulldozer. She was defending the home of a Palestinian farmer, you know, a pharmacist, Palestinian farmer. And he was, and, his, and she was defending his home. They bulldozed her to death. In her account, called, her parents wrote, uh, they collected her diary entries and they wrote, and they had that in her name afterwards. Uh, but she wrote about Gaza. She visited Gaza and the West Bank. And she said about Gaza, she says that I've seen uh, how, uh, I've seen the, 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 the labor of love and the care in Palestine, how Palestinians plant olive trees and how they cultivate and care and love olive trees and how they sustenance rich for olive trees. And he said, I, she said, I, I said I, I've seen the way that you have uh, farmlands, you have olive groves and you have greenhouses. So Palestinians are protecting these things. And she said that, I know if Uncle Craig, meaning someone back home for her, and Grandma were here, they would defend their gardens you know, with their teeth. The idea that you can make these associations, the fact that if you were there, how would you act? If you were there, how would you respond? If you had been denied access to, to basic uh, amenities in life for 75 years, captivated, if you were subjugated, if you were imprisoned in this situation, colonized uh, in for so many decades, how would you respond? How would you do it? How would you do different to what they might be doing today? That's a key thing for us to ask. And I think Rachel Corey makes those associations for us to understand the importance of how we, how we construct empathy in ourselves. One, of course, is through imagined storying. I have a chapter in my book about the killing of our sister Abir Qasim Hamza al We should know her name, Abir 
Qasim Hamza Jannami. She was 14 years old. I emphasize the word 14, that her age, because in American media, they put her as 25 years old. She was 14 years old. She was killed by an American group of soldiers. Stephen Green led the assault against her. They mass raped her. They set her on fire. They killed her family. Her mother was Fikriya. Father Hamza, Sister Hadil, they killed all of them. They burned the whole house down Then when they fled. They were caught. Stephen Green said in his account, I did not see the Iraqis as humans. I didn't see the Iraqis as humans. You know, so that in his mind, there were Hajjis. And of course, Hajjis is like a, an honorific title. Someone performed the Hajj. But Hajj was seen as a dehumanizing label. It was seen as, as, as an other, as dehumanized, as a Hajji, as someone that's different. And that's because they didn't appreciate the cultural association with the word Hajji or seeing Iraqis, even though you've bombed their country and you've reduced it to rubble, they're still living as human beings, subhanAllah. They work it with the same air and anticipations and hopes and dreams. When do we hear about that? When do we hear, for example, that any a Palestinian child killed as a child that had hopes and dreams and fears and worries and things to look forward to, anticipations in life. All of those things, in fact, are humanizing currents for, for, for people. Whereas if you strip them of that, you're saying that they simply existed as a block but has no sense of, of humanness in them. But of course, everybody does. And that's the key thing for us to remember. They're just terrorists. They're just terrorists. This is the new... It's terrorists. This is the new N-word. This is the new yeah. um, Jew. This is the new subhuman. This is the new whatever the, the term is to render someone as subhuman enough and worthy of reparatory violence or oppression. Well, or... On that wall in, in Auschwitz-Birkenau, where they used to line the Jews up, they used to extract from their teeth like gold and take their cards and anything of, of, of worth that they could sell. And they would realize that on their identity cards, sometimes the victims had the same names, like as the mothers of the perpetrators. And that humanizing element would cause them something. It's a very good book called Ordinary Men. It's about the way that some Jews, they fight upwards. They refuse to shoot. Uh, sorry, some Nazis fight upwards. They refuse to shoot because they, they didn't want to feel the, the element of guilt um, so they 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 purposefully missed. Yeah, they missed. When the fight up was rather than firing at the victims because of that element of, of humor. And maybe there's many people, in fact, like that in the world today. Maybe there's many people, in fact, maybe there's many good people, even in America, for example, the parts of the world, who might see the news, and maybe they are surrounded by an environment that's kind of pro-Israel, for example. But they realize in their consciousness that this is something that's wrong. This is something that is so hideous. The fact that innocent babies and children are being killed and targeted, not just today, not just from October the 6th. The wall didn't start ticking from October the 6th or 7th. It's in fact for 70, 80 years of occupation, of occupation, of, of theft of homes, of, of stealing of land, of stealing of resources, of, of, of settler expansion, all of these things are happening. Uh, every one of those people has a story, as a humanized story. And in fact, Kibre Kizay, that's why he used a pen name for his book, because he knew that it's going to have a very negative reaction to people's mindset. He used a pen name to show that, you know, where you're taking over the homes of people, uh, you know, who are humans just like you. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
one of the one of the reasons why the um, Palestinians they they're saying that they they're taking prisoners, so-called hostages, is because every time that happens, we've seen in the past. They, they, the, the, the prisoners undergo a kind of um, de-radicalization almost that the brainwashing, the dehumanization kind of uh, uh, is, is, is undone. And they come out as many of them advocates for the Palestinian cause. Many, and not just the Palestinians, but anywhere in the world, anywhere there's a dehumanized people and they take uh, prisoners or hostages. You think about um, Yvonne Ridley, for example, you know, when she was um, uh, captured by the Taliban. Uh, as a journalist she came out she she you know she 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 saw them uh, close up close and personal people begin to see and recognize the humanity in others if they're treated well obviously we don't we don't um, saying people should be harmed as prisoners of prisoners should, but when if they're treated as islam says to treat prisoners of war for example as islam says to treat those who are uh, who are captives for, uh, from battle and so forth they end up seeing uh, you as a human being and and, and start rehumanizing you know so that's that's one of the reasons why and we see that I remember the uh, mentioned this in the last episode the 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 Indian uh, pilot who was shot down you know and and when it, whenever that happens obviously there's there's a there's a kind of diplomatic kind of solution uh, that that needs to be sought but when they actually come into contact with each other you know the two sides that are fighting when they actually see them not with guns in their hands but as Maybe one of them is a prisoner, or they 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 meet in a mutual kind of way. I remember in 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 during World War Two, they they taught us back in high school that, you know, on Christmas Day they 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 just uh, when they're in the trenches they broke out into a football match, <laughs> you know. So just like you begin to see the other side, you know, as as a human being and start interacting them with them on you know, not in the context of killing and shooting and so forth but in the context of just having a cup of tea or you know doing something normal seeing people in their normal habitat and normal environment so forth. Well, one, so that's well, what wilfred owen in fact in the world war one has much of this in fact he sadly died in the war he was friends with sigfred sassoon the other poet and we know from the margin entries of his poetry that sassoon was editing his poem for one of his poems he wrote about this sense of uh like a dream of, of escape of getting to the side of the enemy and uh and they and they talk about why they went to war and uh Sigfrid Sassoon says it was to please it was to please the mag meaning to please the girlfriend and uh even though many young people went to war at the same time same age uh because everybody else did and so it wasn't because uh, they wanted to prove themselves as noble chivalrous and to please their girlfriends. And then he realizes that the other side, they have the same ambitions. They wanted to please their girlfriends and uh, and make some quick money. So you're right in saying that. Allah in the Quran says, you know, they're not all the same. And we should remember that as Muslims, that maybe, and I, and I made the point of the refuseniks for a reason, there are many on that side who who, who are against the uh, policies of their governments, who support the cause of innocent victimization of the Palestinians, there are many who Jews who are in fact against Israel even, um, and so we don't paint everybody. In fact, that's how you, you otherwise by painting everyone with the same brush. That's stereotyping them. But to individualize each person, realize every person has their own level of consciousness. Perhaps some people are stuck in situations where the pressure from around them is forcing them to think one particular way. But everybody, of course, has their own heart and their own needing. And their own uh, and their own choice in life. So we should not forget that. But I think that you're you're right in saying that 
by 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 encountering uh, others. And you know, one of the in the Prophet's time, there was a man called Thamama Rabdurrahman who was taken prisoner. And uh, the Prophet passed him one day, and he says, "What can I do with you, Thamama?" And Thamama says, "Well, you know, you have a choice. Either you could kill me, and there'll be revenge. Either you can free me, or he's giving." And the Prophet is leaving him. The second day, same question. Third day, same same question. And the fourth day, the Prophet leaved, uh, let him go. And uh, Thamama says, uh, he says, I saw that I used to think that the worst, worst people on earth were you people. But now I think the best people on earth are you people. And the worst deen on earth was Islam. And the best deen on earth is Islam. And the worst per person was you. But now the best person is you. So therefore, they have an impression bearing on people when they encounter, when they see the reality of how people live and how they treat others. And of course, Islam is commanding us with those code of ethics from Islam about being good, about being about... One of the beautiful things, uh, you know, there's a beautiful word in the Quran called Athar and Athar. So I was asking one of the local shiuk about... So you have Athar where Allah the Quran speaks about prisoners and Allah says, Allah says, uh, uh, Allah says they give others, uh, yeah, they give others to themselves, yeah, even though they're, they're in, even though they're in need. Uh, and so, therefore, the element of of sacrificing for others, giving, preferring others to themselves. Um, but then you have athar in the Quran. So you have multiple times where athar is used more. Athar meaning imprints, landmarks uh, about uh, impressions. Athar. And so, what is the connection between athar and athar here? And he says, because whenever you make a sacrifice for somebody else and you prefer them to yourself, you're leaving an impression on them, on their heart. That's so powerful. He says, that's so powerful. He says, you're leaving the, the impression on their heart. And I thought, wow, subhanAllah, that's so powerful. And that's so true because uh, that a sense of association with people and seeing their human face and that conduct of of uh, just humanness has a very big impression bearing on their uh, perceptions of what those people truly are in a very humanized sense. So. Yeah, subhanAllah. So that that's what the, the you know the, the Palestinians themselves on the ground they can do that when they come into contact with people. But from our perspective here, sitting thousands of miles away, how can we we rehumanize the Palestinians? I think that one one of the things, of course, is to so one of the course is to say that well they're already human in their own frame. That's the, the first thing. Um, for the perspective, from the perspective of of the people who don't people do not perhaps appreciate that of humanity. I think the the, the pen is very important. I, it's a very good book called Gaza Writes Back, which you can buy on Amazon. Gaza Writes Back. It's a short stories by Palestinian Gaza authors from Gaza called Gaza Writes Back, and it's about these kind of very human accounts of their life as short stories. We should buy books like that, teach them to our children. We should kind of promote the importance of um, uh, of Gaza from a very humanized perspective. Uh, there are, of course, many things we could do. When you think about, like, mentally, the sense of imagined storying, uh, in mentally, empathy, it means trying to put yourself in somebody else's position, uh, perspective take with them what would you do if you were in that position situation they have a school I have a school uh, that means I'm learning that means they're learning that means I have teachers that means they have teachers so kind of very simple processing in the human mind 
Um, we have to, of course, uh, ensure that um, the stories are not forgotten, but they're told. By retelling the stories, we're in fact humanizing the narrative uh, by retelling the stories. If we, for example, let's say we take, there are famous, there are names that we would uh, latch onto, uh, names that have been popularized in media, names that have become associations or even memes, important names. But if we forget the element of the fact that every victim has a name, every every victim had a story, every victim had a life, every victim had a brother who was somebody's, somebody's mother, somebody's cousin, somebody's nephew, uh, we're not doing justice, in fact, to helping to rehumanize what was lost. You know, Rachel Corey spoke about the sense of the field of vision, the field of vision, the fact that we could have empathy, but do we have the are people within the, the area of our care and concern, within the domain of our care and concern? Are they within that sense of, are, are they, are, or, or is there kind of displacement of, of vision and memory? That's the idea that you might have, in fact, she speaks about a person called, a kid called Ali. Ali was a person in, in Corey's book who wanted to uh, smell the sea, smell the sea, but he can't get too close because that's going to be a, a warning, a trouble for him. And people would say to him, yalla, yalla, and she would have in her book, yalla, yalla, meaning you need to go, go, or move, move from here, uh, or la, la, meaning no, no. And, but, but she wrote, she wrote about the account of Ali. So, and Ali was blown up. She was killed by the, by the IDF. He was killed. But his account is, is there, meaning that's Ali's story. Uh, and I think that, uh, it's like Imam, I think Sahawi says, Man arraha Musliman Whoever relates the tale of a Muslim is as if he's given him life. If you narrate the tale of a Muslim is as if you've given him life. So we each other life by telling each other stories and events and I think that those stories are powerful because they leave an impression on a person they leave an impression on a person of how they can live their life or how other people live their life and I think that the less that we have of that because it's not just about the uh, you might say uh, uh, thousands have been killed but each of those thousands has a life if you name them if you have a, a tally of a, a list of names this person, that person, that person, that means every single life. It's not just one life gone, it's the life of that person and the mother and the son and the neighbor and the teacher. It's a whole paradigm around that person. That's how you humanize. You, you give life to the whole narrative. You don't, for example, if they say, for example, a thousand kids have been killed, you don't repeat that. You say a thousand human lives have been killed. A thousand kids who had somebody's were killed. A thousand mothers lost their children were killed. I mean, the whole thing has a much bigger uh, impression bearing on us and our character and our consciousness than it should have by relying on, on only immediate accounts of, of that suffering. So one strategy to and, and tactic to challenge and, and undo dehumanization is to give details, narrate stories, give names, the somebody's is a good strategy to use to try and can you know challenge dehumanization of Palestinians in public and even you know unfortunately the next conflict that we see whether it's Uyghurs whether it's in Kashmir or Muslims in uh, India or Syria or even non-Muslims being you know dehumanized somewhere we have a duty to challenge this dehumanization and and uh, and and recognize and and force people to recognize humanity in these people what what other kind of strategies and tips can you give 
uh, to the audience. Maybe, maybe on social media we can do something. Maybe when we go to the next demonstration in public. I think we should um, not, yeah, we should not, of course, ever undermine now the power of social media. I think this is having this is having a very big effect on the way that the uh, the public opinion is being affected, influenced because of social media. And I think that anybody who has a Twitter account, uh, a Twitter handle, any account social media, use it to just push forward the, the, the cases of uh, not just the, 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 the accounts of, of suffering of, of people, but the human story involved in that. I think if we can do that, and just by re even retweet, retweeting some important tweets, we should do that all the time, every day, to really affect the algorithms involved in this. We have a, a responsibility as Muslims now, whatever we can do to try and do. And I think that social media right now is, is truly crucial. There are ways, in fact, even I remember last year when you had that person, Yaakov, in some Palestinian woman's garden. Yaakov, he was standing there. And the, the, the lady, may Allah bless her and give her Jannah and give her good, goodness in life. Uh, was saying to him that you're in my garden and you're in my garden and you're stealing my house. And he said, but if I don't steal it, then somebody else would steal it. That went really viral. That whole thing when Yaakov was standing in the garden, the whole thing went viral. Everybody saw that. And they realized, well, this is really what occupation means. Theft of home means this. Somebody standing in the lady's garden. Imagine it happened to you. Imagine someone else stood in your garden, locked the doors, barricaded themselves and said, this is where I, I'm, I'm going to be here. How would you feel? There are some very good uh, YouTube videos, short videos, even movies, uh, videos about what suffering, what uh, occupation means, even in a kind of a, a westernized context. And I think that we, we have access to them online. We should spread them to our friends, neighbors, our teachers, our associates, uh, and really make this a very broader concern for people to think about why are people resisting? Uh, you know, Nelson Mandela said, I, I didn't, he said, that, you know, he said, I didn't, he said that violence was not something that we chose. It was something thrust upon us. He said, I said, I didn't, I didn't kind of uh, decide upon recklessness or because of a love of violence. He, he said, I, I wasn't like that. But he said that because of years of uh, of uh, brutality and exploitation and 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 suffering that we experience, we were forced in situation. And I think that it's important for us to realize that if we explain to people that this is what the people in Palestine have experienced for decades long, uh, the natural inhabitants, natives of that land, that they've been expelled from their land, and this is why they're. Uh, you know, making their voice heard. I think that we have we have a responsibility to share that concern that they have. We are, of course, our brothers and sisters, you know, with them. And I think that uh, even attending, for example, demonstrations or or campaigning or, or or reading, learning about the history of Palestine, this is very crucial for us. Many people, in fact, don't know about the history of Palestine. Uh, we should learn about the events, about the dates, about the repercussions. We should learn about the, the, the Anbiya in Palestine who was settled in that land, who lived in that, we should know about what makes that land of Palestine, Al-Aqsa, so important for us as Muslims. We should know about the life of Zakaria, Maryam, and Hannah, and Ibrahim, and so many prophets who lived and traveled in that land and settled in that land. We should know about what makes that land important. We should know about the Fadail. Half of my PhD was in the Fadail of Al-Aqsa, Al-Quds. Half of the PhD was on that. 
topic. Uh, and in fact, so in my first book, I dedicate the first half, first part of it to enumerating the virtues of Al-Aqsa and where the, where the manuscripts came from and how they were assessed and who published them. And that, I think that in those days in the Crusades, remember that in the Crusades, when Al-Aqsa was occupied by the, a foreign enemy, the Crusaders, they used different strategies. On the one hand, you had, of course, ulama and scholars and people like uh, Ali ibn Fadr sulami who was the imam of the, the chief faqih of Umayyad Mosque, and he wrote his kitab al-Jihad, the book of Jihad. And it was a way of pressing upon the sultans and the khalif to be responsible of taking action to repel the crusaders. It, that, it was his job. You had poets. You had people like Al-Abi Wardi, Ibn Khayrat. You had others who were write poems about the injustices, about the women being imprisoned, and about this and that. That was their responsibility. You had other people involved in this. So everybody has a capacity, responsibility, and, and never undermine the reference. I'll, I'll say one thing. As Sulami died 1107, I think, or 1106, writes his book 1105. Crusades happened in 1099. Al-Quds was taken. In 1187, when Salah Hadin was preparing the Battle of Hittin, the penultimate encounter between uh, before the liberation of Al-Quds, Al-Aqsa, uh, they were choosing which book to read and, and take inspiration from and to kind of uh, uh, help the army prepare themselves. And they didn't choose Ibn, Ibn Mubarak's very famous Kitab al-Jihad, they chose as Sulami's uh, Kitab al-Jihad. And so therefore, never undermine Many years later, yeah. Yeah, so more than 80 years later, and he had died a long time ago. And by the way, we have manuscripts of people who were attendants in this gathering who were very few. They, they divided the book into small segments, and they had maybe five or six, seven or eight. It was very few attendees. But when it was needed, it was needed most later on. And it was used. Therefore, never undermine your efforts, your words, your, 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 your drawings, your, your art, you know, your poetry, your social media, your speeches, your donations, your charity, all of these things are very important. Therefore, I, I emphasize the importance, number one, the importance of dua. Make dua, subhanAllah. You know, every one of you should wake up for Qiyam al for the Hajjah every night in, in your, in your uh, uh, Salah, in Fajr, pray your Qudud Nazila. You know, make dua, make dua for the Muslimin, for the Mustafaheen, for the Muslims in Palestine, in Kashmir, of Hind, of, of all places, the, the Uyghur Muslims of China, uh, make dua for them. So dua is, the, the Prophet says, the weapon of the believer. The weapon of the believer never, never undermine that weapon. You've always make dua for the Muslims wherever in your sujood. The Prophet of Allah says, the closest to, to his Lord is when he's in sajda, so increase in your dua. Uh, the importance of, of charity, of helping those who are in need. Subhanallah. If, imagine if, if, the, if they're restricted, of course, I, I don't say imagine, but I say it's, it's a real event. They restricted the water. It's not as if it's imagination. They restricted the water. They, for, they forbade upon the people of, of, of Gaza water and food and electricity and fuel. That is upon us as Muslims. Of course, Allah, may Allah, call the Zalimin for the zulm. But upon us as Muslims to help them in the suffering that's upon us as Muslims. So things like charity, dua, uh, campaigning, uh, protesting, uh, learning about the history of Al-Aqsa, of Al-Quds, uh, of, 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 of narrating the lives of those who have suffered, who are suffering. Uh, that's upon us as Muslims in our small attempts to try and humanize their, their suffering, their struggle. Zakla Khair, Sheikh Uthman. There's lots of uh, advice, lots of empowering stuff we can get 
doing right away for our brothers and sisters in Palestine and beyond. Um, my last question is just please finish this sentence. If there's one thing this or you know you want the audience to take away from this podcast, it would be not to forget your brothers and sisters in, in Islam and Palestine and Gaza. Not to forget, and I say the word forget because it's very likely that as the days pass and nights pass, we can of course forget. But I think that we should remember always and how we remember by putting things a plan and action for us, for our families. If you make this a life commitment, a life commitment, then whenever the, the downtrodden people, oppressed people, will always be the first to help alleviate their suffering as best as we can uh, for as long as we can. That's, I think, the, the key thing. Exactly. May Allah bless you.